Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Pixel Meditations. This is your host Steve, and with me is Toby. Tonight we're going to be talking about two very classic series, Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings. And we're going to be comparing them, not to say which one is better than the other one, but just sort of talking about the series individually and in relation to one another, what they mean to us, and kind of talk about the series, strengths and weaknesses, and what they do differently. Um, Everyone that talks about these series tends to kind of eventually devolve into, oh, I like this series better. So while we might say something to that extent at some point in this episode, we're sort of hoping to escape the trappings of a very basic which do I like better conversation and trying to talk about more of the deeper aspects of the series, such as the prose, what the author's intent was, how religion interplays with it, how the TV and movie adaptations affect the novels, and a few other things that we're, that we're hoping to get to. And there might be a couple of surprise tangents thrown in there like usual. So Toby, before we start, how's it going? Pretty good, man. Uh, just uh, chilling in uh, Deutschland. Although it's really bizarre because it's uh, it's snowing in May here. I feel like that there's like a problem with the weather. Like, why is it snowing here? I don't know. But <laughs> Yeah, I mean, coming from Maine, we have snow in April. That's not all that rare. But snow in May, I don't think I've ever seen snow in May. It's, it's pretty bizarre, I have to say. I mean, it doesn't like sticking or anything. It's just like, why? It's just weird. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I guess like you have those those days in winter. They're just as strange to me. When you have this winter weather, it's below freezing. Then all of a sudden, December twenty third, you have this day that's you know thirty five degrees Celsius or like eighty five degrees Fahrenheit, and you're like, what is going on here? Yeah, I can go to the beach. I would go to the beach today if the weather wasn't the water. Sorry, the water wasn't so cold. Yeah, <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, though hopefully it's hopefully it's not a global warming thing. It's just kind of a freak event, but I yeah, don't know. I don't know, man. Well, I don't I have no idea. But All right, man. Are well, you ready to talk about uh Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, obviously like these are two really classic series, um especially with the Game of Thrones uh TV show which is finishing its uh last few episodes this month. Um you know, I think like these these um series are kind of in the minds of a lot of people now so um somewhat appropriate like uh i don't know if you saw the the most recent game of thrones episode um with the the, did, the, the long the night Walkers. yeah yes. the long night yeah the long night oh the long night the episode name yeah the episode name <laughs> i was th- i was thinking of <laughs> night with a k and i was like what is that oh the long, <laughs> the long night yeah not not that long but um Invariably, you know, people are comparing this episode to uh, Helm's Deep, which is like, you know, the the great battle in uh, the Two Towers. Um, and I think there's some criticism for this Game of Thrones episode <laughs> recently. Yeah, I, I, kind of, I guess it depends if we want to give spoilers. I mean, I guess it's a week after now, so I guess like we can give spoiler alerts. But yeah. what, what do you want to say about the new episode? Um, I mean, I think it's... Okay, so like that, we could make an entire um, episode just on that that particular episode of Game of Thrones. But I think generally, it's it's kind of just falling into the typical HBO kind of production, and it and it it's kind it, it kind of has lost a little bit of the magic from Martin's books, in my opinion. Um, like there was a lot of kind of expected stereotypical moments, although I don't know. I don't know. I have yeah, so, I have I have some problems to be honest with the where where like where the TV show is going at the moment. 
But there was some massive plot armor in that episode. Yeah, plot sure. armor. Yeah, that's kind of and and that's just so unfortunate to me because um, if you think about Martin, he's famous because of his lack of plot armor in his characters, like Ned Stark. Right, Ned yeah. Stark getting his head chopped off. Like that is the the last the or the like the least likely example of plot armor that anybody could have imagined, and it yeah. happened. So I mean, the red. The Red Wedding takes out half of your favorite family in the show. Then all of a sudden, these White Walkers only manage to kill like one or two minor heroes in, the, yeah, yeah, in yeah. this huge battle. While like probably at least like five or six of them should have fallen. But yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's the show devolving into something. I definitely think there's some writing in the pacing of the episode and the way they made some of the characters battle that felt like plot armor and it felt pretty cheap. But I think that they want to get through the White Walkers episode and kind of cleanly get through that and move yeah. on to the like, what's ultimately the more interesting confrontation with, with the Lannisters yeah, and, and I guess the Greyjoys backing them. Yeah, I think that's the more human and relatable battle that everyone's more interested in than the White Walkers. So yeah, but I have mixed feelings on the episode. Yeah, I, I have mixed feelings, and I guess I guess it's a it's it's worth. Um, at this point in, in kind of what we're going to be talking about is to say that when we make the comparisons between Lord of the Rings and a song in F- of fire and ice or game of Thrones, we're, we're co- going to try and disentangle the TV shows from the, um, from the books as much as we can and more so focus on the, on the books, because I feel like honestly, these last two seasons have been more of an HBO production than of like Martin's yeah. creations. So I think, I think it's just like important to kind of just stick to the roots and just like compare the books. So, yeah. And, but one thing I'll say though, just to maybe give the show a little bit of slack is I think that with the first three game of Thrones books, um, I think there was just amazing writing there. And I think when you got to book four, A Feast of Crows, and book five, A Dance of Dragons, um, George R. R. Martin tried to do the thing that uh, Tolkien did, where he kind of divided his characters in half. Like half the book focuses on half the characters, and half the book focuses on the other half. Mm-hmm. And I felt like the writing and the storytelling, not in Lord of the Rings, I felt like it worked in Lord of the Rings, but I felt like in the Song of Fire and Ice series, it diminished my interest in the characters. In A Feast of Crows, the pacing was just way off. In A Dance of Dragons, the pacing was way off. And I don't know, it felt like the series had sort of lost some of the magic to me, even with those last two books. Now, they're still good books. I really like Dance of Dragons, and I'm really excited for book six, whenever, mm-hmm. if whenever it comes out. But I do think that maybe, to give the show a little bit of credit, I think maybe... Martin series might have diminished a little bit within the books themselves. Yeah. Now that might be controversial to say. There might be a lot of fans that are like, "No, you idiot! No way!" You know, Dance of Dragons like picked up right where it should have. But that was that was my overall feeling when I had read, yeah, book four and five. Yeah. So I mean, I don't think that that that's controversial. Like you can just look at look it up on the um the Amazon rankings of the of these books. Like the first um what is it like three Game of Th- or a Song of Fire and Ice books are are considered really, really, really good books, right? For the most part. Um, yeah, I mean, a Game of Th- Game of Thrones is pretty pretty much akin to the very first season of Game of Thrones. There's not a lot of differences. Book two is A Clash of Kings, and that deals with a lot of the King's Landing stuff, like Cersei and uh, Tyrion clashing and kind of the war continuing with the Starks and the Lannisters. And there, well, there's so much stuff I couldn't possibly summarize these yeah, thousand yeah. page books. But then like, of course, a, a Storm of Swords, I think is generally considered the favorite book. There's just so much that happens in a Storm of Swords and it's bigger than the other books. And I mean, I think in the show it comprised two of the seasons, I think season three and four, both those seasons 
uh, entail the whole book. So it, it took two seasons to get through book three, which is an incredible book. And I don't think the writing got worse in book four and five. I just think the storytelling kind of diminished, maybe mm-hmm. because of the structure of the book, maybe because of other factors. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, I guess we'll see what happens with book six. Yeah. So I have kind of like a theory of why the books uh, kind of like diminished into what they did or just fell into the like the, the whole of what, of what happened. And I think it, in, to some extent, comes back to um, the ult- ultimately like the writing style that Martin chooses, which serves him really well for like things like characterization, especially for the, like you said, like the first three books. Like the characters are just incredible. He has really cool general story ideas. But okay, so just generally speaking, um, Martin is considered to be uh, pl- like a classic uh, planter. So he, he writes only with like kind of like vague notions of kind of like where he wants to take his story. And he just kind of writes and he writes a lot of details and he, and he kind of just like meanders. And sometimes he gets whims and he's like, wow, that's interesting. I'm going to go there and then I'm going to do that and I'm going to do this. And I think over the course of the of this book series, he just sort of like wrote himself into a giant like knot. And it was just like it just became really complicated, and he and he kind of didn't know how to progress, and he and and he he just like it's just like um, you know really difficult. It's like it's like having a giant knot and like finding ways to like disentangle it in a way that like is interesting and exciting for the audience. Yeah, and I think that's sort of perpetuated by the fact that he's also working on other projects at the same time. You know, he's released other books outside of the uh, Songs of Fire and Ice series since book uh, book five, Dance of Dragons, was released in 2011. Mm-hmm. I mean, just last year he released a Game of Thrones book, but it was like a history on the Targaryens, I think. Yeah. And so it just seems like he's working on way too much stuff at the same time. And you can kind of see that his mind's just running probably in 20, 30, 40, 50 different directions yeah. with his writing goals. And that it's it's really hard to focus on just book six, which is obviously what the fans want. But for him, you know, he probably is just like, you know, I got this Targaryen stuff happening in my brain right now. Right now I have this history of the Targaryens. I can write this. It's going to be awesome. Book six has to wait. So he just writes it. Then the fans are like, come on, man, where's book six? We don't care about the Targaryens right now. Just save this for after. You know, I guess sort of with something like where Tolkien – if, if you know if you like book if like a fellowship and two towers came out and then there's this long pause between return of the king and he released like the silmarillion like in that time fans might be a little bit <laughs> stoked about it i think yeah i think that's kind of what martin's doing yeah yeah so i think i think that's a, a kind of like a clear difference between um what martin is doing with uh, a game of thrones and what uh tolkien did with lord of the rings so i think that like the Lord of the Rings is just like a, it's like a grand epic, and I, and you know it has a limited number of books. It's only three, or, or six, I guess if you if you consider each book has two books. But um, you know it's it's like a short, much shorter like literary uh, piece than what Martin is making. And I think it was you know we were very intentionally made from the very beginning, and it was very det- very planned out with a lot of notes and you know a lot of a lot of back information like he literally like has catalogs of information that's not included in the in the books and his son you know curated it you know for decades after he died and released like like volumes of, of books afterwards just off this like now, do you know backstory information what 
I wonder, do you know, the, the appendices in Lord of the Rings, did that get released with the books, or was that something that has been added to special editions or later editions yeah. of the books since I, the initial release? I'm not really sure about that. I don't know about the first edition, but, I mean, every edition of the Lord of the Rings I've ever had has had that included, um, including older... But the appendices um, are quite... They're quite uh, in-depth. You can learn a lot about the backstory of Lord of the Rings and the characters and a lot of the happenings that are briefly mentioned in Lord of the Rings that aren't really described in great detail. A lot of that information's in the appendices. Like, if you want to listen, if you want to know, like, the history of, like, the Duniadorians, or however you say it, Dunador, Dunador, maybe you can, how do you say this? The the race that Aragorn, there, his lineage, Numenor. The Numa- sorry. Numenorians. Nu- <laughs> Numenorians, yeah. Oh, if you want to learn like the entire history of the Numenorians, you can just like flip to one of those appendices behind Lord of the Rings. And, oh yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and that's true. There is a lot of additional information included in uh, the appendices, but I mean, there's just so much more. You know, like you have the entire like history of the elves, um, which is chronicled in the Cimmerian, which is largely not a part of the Lord of the Rings at all. So you have like a lot. There's a lot of stuff that's just not in there. Um. And I don't know. I think the just the scale of Tolkien's world and and the amount of detail that he included makes him more of like a quote unquote planner writer. So he really had more of an idea of kind of where he wanted to go and what he wanted to do and the sto- types of stories he wanted to tell. And Martin kind of like doesn't know exactly what he's going to, going to be doing. But I would say even still, even after this knot of like kind of like the middle of the middle uh, books of the, you know, song fire nice series, Martin's characters are still incredible. And like his, his like dedication to kind of like realism and just like the, just bleak darkness of the world that we live in, you know, his has made his series just incredible and awesome and really fun to, to, um, you know, to read and to watch the TV shows. Like, like his stories are awesome. They're just awesome. I think for a very different way in a very different way from Tolkien. Yeah, I mean, I think with Tolkien's characters, you have a lot of really great characters, and I don't think that the classic, you know, saying that there's not really much character development in Lord of the Rings is entirely true. I know what you mean. Like, you don't have those, like, moral... Most of their their moral compasses point in one direction, and Mm -hmm. they don't change. But I think that, like, you know, a character... like I think of, like, uh, Mary and Pippin. Like, their characters change quite a bit throughout the rest of the story. You know, they start off as these kind of, like, uh, I guess, like, troublemakers, little miscreants. Like, they're not bad, but, you know, they're they're causing trouble, and they don't really... They're just kind of youth teenagers, I guess. Mm-hmm. But by the end of the story, you know, they're, like, parading around as, like, soldiers singing and dancing, brave heroes of the land. Like, you do have some kind of cool character developments there. And, like, Samwell, obviously... He's, he's, he is definitely my favorite character in the book in terms of, like, how they develop. I mean, Samwell, you see him absolutely become, like, the most brave character in the story, someone that can take on the burden of the ring, protect his master. And I think that there is a lot of great character development in Lord of the Rings. It just doesn't... The compass doesn't change. Like, with Game of Thrones, obviously, we really like these characters because you don't know what they're going to do exactly. You know, you have like a character like Arya who starts off, you know, and you think that Arya is going to be this kind of a good girl. She's going to be like a warrior or something. But she completely has the potential to sort of do a lot of 
bad. Like she could, and that's kind of what I think we like about it. We don't know. Like we think Arya is going to remain good, but she's completely a character. She would never be evil. She would never like, join the Lannisters or anything. But it can be completely possible that she becomes so enraged, or she could have like some kind of like fury based on, based on her training and her own like past, seeing her own father beheaded and stuff that could get, could head in an unpredictable direction. And that unpredictability of where the characters are going to go and who's going to live, who's going to die, you know, who's going to betray who. I think that's just sort of. It's sort of like a soap opera in a way. <laughs> I think like, it doesn't doesn't it have some of those qualities though, or there's kind of like that. Even when I watched the last episode when they're sitting in the crypt, and then you know it's like maybe we should fall in love before we die. It sort of has a soap opera feel to it, and obviously it's not a soap opera. It's a lot, it's a lot deeper than that. Yeah, yeah. But um, Game of Thrones, it sort of has the show. I think diminishes a lot of what the book does with like the character development. Mm-hmm. There's all these cliffhangers, and there's sort of that soap opera. Um, aspect to it but I think like the books it's just amazing because you read each chapter from that character's perspective and Martin literally lets you get into that character's head Mm -hmm. and it's amazing how well he can actually create each character and make you feel like it's an organic character with its own sentience and its own ability to kind of maneuver itself and reading a chapter from the perspective of Daenerys is entirely different from any other chapter it doesn't feel like Jon Snow it almost feels like the writing's a little bit different too Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think like uh, to- like Martin is kind of like just he's really involved in the drama and just just kind of like the the, the theater of his stories. I think in, in a way um, that's that's much bigger than the the world that he's made itself. Like Westeros is great; it's fascinating, like the Wall and the White Walkers and everything. But what really really makes this the books um, and even the TV show so incredible is just the characters and the, the drama that they're experiencing. And just, I think just how they face the chaos and the uncertainty of the world and this, the consequences of that, like his, like he has the ability to depict, um, you know, PTSD like really, really well, like within, you know, certain characters and, you know, it's not, it doesn't feel like fake. Like, like when Theon Greyjoy, turns into reek like you're just like wow i i think i really understand because that was just like a like a ridiculous thing that happened to him and then his sort of like ability to to fight his demons and to turn back into theon Greyjoy after that um you know like like that transformation that ability to make characters change is is really really powerful and something that is 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 a bit unmatched i think in the fantasy world it's lifelike, you know, it's sort of like real life, you know, in Lord of the Rings, there's no question of which characters are going to remain good or bad, but in Game of Thrones, like, I think that, but well, first of all, I think one thing to point out here is Lord of the Rings takes place in about the span of a year. It's a very short time span of Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. whereas Game of Thrones literally takes place over years. So Martin's allowed himself more space to kind of show the changes that happen in life mm-hmm. after a year, after five years, mm-hmm. after 10 years. And, you know, by the end of the story, Arya is not a little girl anymore. She's now a woman that can make her own decisions yeah. to completely defend herself. And so you do, you see that because everyone in real life changes, you know, some people like to think that, you know, everyone's kind of stays the same and who they are at the core, but life absolutely does change. And I think Martin really wants to depict that in his characters. You know, how can this little, how can Daenerys kind of go from this helpless little helpless little like princess who's getting raped by these Dothraki and they're trying to help her like asshole brother to get the throne. How does she, how does she go from that in the first book to basically the most badass dragon queen who, who, who has complete confidence in herself and her decision-making by the end of the story, you know? And that's, I think what Martin's interested in is 
not just these transformations, but what causes these transformations, what we go through in our personal lives, what our struggles are, who we interact with. He's interested in all these moving parts that change who we are fundamentally. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a sight to behold. Like Martin totally deserves his, his, uh, his cred as far as being one of the greatest writers of our time. Um, but just sort of like bring back Lord of the Rings. I think you're totally right that um, Lord of the Rings is kind of unfairly maligned in being completely black and white and simplistic. Um, and I think it's in large part due to the fact that many of the subsequent books that were inspired by Lord of the Rings, which is arguably the entire genre of fantasy novels at present, <laughs> but like a huge amount of the subsequent books did fall into these very simplistic black and white tropes. And he sort of become known as like that. But, but in reality, if you read those books, I think there are glimpses of greater complexity and depth in, in his world. Um, so we did the Lord of the Ring or the Fellowship of the Ring episode, a few, you know, a few weeks ago, and we were talking about like Gollum and how Gollum has these like kind of like twisted and tormented aspects to him. Like he's like, he doesn't really truly, you know, feel like or we don't feel like he's a truly evil character, but we also don't feel like he's a good character either. Like he's completely tormented and and he's in this like sp- space in between. But I mean, for the most part, I think you could say that there's a very consistent underlying kind of philosophy that uh, Tolkien is, is sort of um, using. And I think it's pretty obvious that it's um, largely, you know, his, re- you know, religion, like Catholicism and, and Christianity in general are informing his sort of worldview when he, when he made this, this book. I think that's completely true. Um, I think a lot of the struggles that um, his characters face are kind of like struggles of, um, kind of like character like like um like the struggle that frodo faces with the ring is kind of like temptation and that's like the you know kind of like the ultimate kind of christian um idea that he he's sort of struggling against his own inner demons and he has that so there is a certain level of complexity to lord of the rings but i would say it's more consistent and and very similar to kind of like uh tolkien's own philosophies Whereas I think Martin is much more open and like less consistent and kind of like a little bit just, I don't know, a, a little bit, I was like, nihil- like not maybe nihilistic about like the, any kind of like ultimate truth or meaning behind anything. And it just has like a very, it has a much more darker and less certain feeling generally. Yeah, I definitely agree with all that. Um, what was I going to say here? I also think it's interesting that, you know, when we talk about this, you know, Tolkien is sort of taking his book and he's placing it into the modern world. You know, he, he creates his entire world. But we talked about in the Fellowship episode, there's so much stuff like the conservation of nature, uh, the, you know, the frailty of the human spirit, especially when it kind of comes into contact with combat and war from his basic, his World War One experience. Mm-hmm. Um, his obsession with languages and sort of how like different races of people interact, which I guess you could think of like maybe stuff like elves and dwarves as different people around the world. It, you, you can make a lot of parallels to the real world, I think, in Tolkien's book, even though he crafted it from the ground up. Whereas Martin, even though a lot of his like um, sub, a lot of his subtext deals with a lot of current stuff like politics mm-hmm. and religion, his story takes place in essentially what is completely a non-modern medieval setting. It, has, it really doesn't relate very much to the current world we live in. There's no, there's no underlying philosophy 
uh, in his world creation. Well, yeah, yes, there is. I, I can't say that. But it doesn't seem to relate as much to the current changes of the present world. Martin seems to have definitely be more in the fantasy realm yeah, yeah. while taking history. He's, he really seems to be in love with history more than the present world with his story. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think, but like, I think narratively, I don't know. I, I just, I feel like he, he's not committed um, to a particular philosophy. Like he seems, to me, he seems more open and just like more, I don't know. Like, like I, I just, I don't get this idea that he's writing with, with those ideas in mind. He's, he's really writing more about the characters and like their interactions with the world. I think that's kind of like his central focus. I don't know. Yeah, although he he has kind of a historical fiction context. A lot of the stuff like the Red Wedding and like oh, like the Starks and the Lannisters are based off like the Lancasters and I think like oh yeah like the I can't remember the, name the, the War of the Roses like France versus yeah France against England so, kind of stuff like that. He definitely has a European setting for his story. Uh-huh. And it deals a lot with like middle middle medieval history, and he seems like he's sort of in love with sort of toying with history too. Uh-huh. Like he, he doesn't want to just toy with his characters in his book. He wants to toy with real life history too, <laughs> and sort of change it to his own manipulated. Um, but no, I mean, like in all seriousness, so I think it's kind of cool that he decides to bring some history in. But I think largely he wants to leave most of the modern day problems out of it and part of it might be their personal lives you know martin grew up in a very very different setting than tokian did tokian saw war tokian was a highly highly educated you know linguist and i always got the impression from martin now i'm not 100 percent sure on all his backstory but i know he grew up kind of like a lonely boy yeah and he always kind of had his like his like turtle superhero and i, I kind of got the impression that martin was sort of the quiet sort of outcast and he was kind of the nerd who read comic books and sort of just like indulged in all nerd culture and just fell in love with comic books and old old uh, fantasy stories and that's kind of how he got his idea to write he seems like he's much more of a reclusive individual than tokian who sort of has a world has his stories reflecting the changes of the world around him Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think Martin has said himself that he most identifies with Samuel Tarly, another Samuel, a Samuel um, from uh, Game of Thrones. Like he actually sees himself as that kind of bookish, like nerd in the corner, kind of like afraid to really, really like go to battle or do anything, you know, very dangerous. But but kind of just like quietly thinking and always, you know, in like around in that capacity, but not really like taking the limelight or or being the central focus in any way. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think that's pretty interesting. I mean, yeah, like both both um, authors are very, very different and come from very different times. So obviously that influences their books, you know, dramatically. Um and, and I think that Martin kind of got lucky with kind of the place that um, cinema and TV is at right now, because we do kind of are really, really interested in more of the gray now than ever before. We don't really like black and white stories as much, although I don't know, maybe an, uh, maybe an argument against that could be made because superhero movies are so extremely popular. But I think, <laughs> I think um, the grayness of life and, and the depiction of characters that don't fit into straight good or bad categories is something that's becoming increasingly more interesting to people. Um, maybe just cause we've seen so many freaking good versus bad stories. I don't know. Yeah. And I think when you, 
eventually when you start doing too much good versus bad, the good starts getting really, really boring. I think yeah, that's a does. very common complaint yeah. with books and movies in the last 30, 40 years. You know, everyone from Luke Skywalker to, you know, Simba, whoever you want to talk about yeah, yeah. kind of movie. It's sort of like they're boring. They just, no one just fights for the good of the world. Like yeah, I yeah. want the world to be a better place. Yeah. Every decision I'm going to make is based upon that one, one holy truth that I want the world to be a better place. You know, mm-hmm. no, nothing operates like that. And I think Martin definitely, Definitely wanted to differentiate his own writing from that, and I think probably that's the world he saw around him. He's a, he, he's an observer, right? He probably saw a lot of terrible things happen on a smaller scale than Tolkien ever did. But I think that it seems like Martin's very well read. He's read a lot of history, he read a lot of fantasy, and he seems like someone who's yeah, he doesn't want that classic black and white. And I don't think I don't think most fans do. I think even in the superhero realm, this is completely like off topic, but. But I think even a character like Thanos, like Thanos being, or how would you say him? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, I'm living in Taiwan now, so all the students around <laughs> me are like Thanos. Thanos. So oh, like, oh yeah. Dude, yeah. the best, the best was when I was in Korea, and all my students called Thor. 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 It's like not Thor. Thor. So I have the English and the Chinese bouncing around my head now, yeah. and I'm sort of stuck in the middle. Where I can't remember which one to say. But I uh, know. I think even like Thanos as a villain is so novel. Oh like, yeah, no, uh, absolutely. A superhero movie. And and I absolutely love Infinity War. Like I think it's one of the best superhero movies ever. And I think it's because of Thanos. And he's just such an interesting villain. Like he he doesn't have like your your kind of like your standard motivations for like in like a like a antagonist like it's just fascinating and and yeah like i think the vast majority of people much prefer a character like batman who has these demons that are you know he's constantly fighting and he's almost like a reluctant superhero in some ways you know he's living with great pain and suffering versus like someone like superman who's just not that interesting he's a he's he's fucking superman like of course like he can do anything he wants like all like it's just his he's just less of an interesting character well, I agree. I feel like you probably just pissed off like one third of our listeners who are on like the Superman camp. But yeah, I definitely agree with you. And tying it back into the series, let's talk about the villains for a second because that's something I think that's really crucially different about the Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. So I'll start with Lord of the Rings here. The villain. I mean, I was just talking to you about Saruman earlier. How I the the book ends with Saruman sort of getting the trying to get his last laugh and in, in the Shire, and you know he's running everything to the ground, taking all their pipe weed and <laughs> destroying all their infrastructure polluting their water just like he did in Isengard and I thought I was like okay Frodo's gonna forgive him Saruman might get like this a little bit of redemption he's not gonna become a good guy but you know it seems like they have this moment where Frodo's like you know he was once great let's forgive him (laughs) and maybe you know maybe he can return to that former self then Tolkien writes something like Saruman glanced back at Frodo with you know hatred and um like, I think, like, he said he also appreciated it. Like, there's, like, a little bit of, like, wow, this guy recognizes that once I was this really great wizard. But no, instead, <laughs> Soromon ends up getting killed with um, his little puppet guy there. I forget his name. Uh, Wormtongue, I think. Yeah. Wormtongue. They end up getting killed on the path together, but not but 10 seconds later. And it just made me think. I'm like, wow. The villains in Game, the villains in Lord of the Rings are just so black. There's no white to them at all. Mm. Like they're just black, but like, but they're also not very interesting. Like they're not very well detailed. You don't see a lot of Sauron. You don't see a lot of Saruman. Mm-hmm. Gollum's the only villain that's really relatable, in my opinion. And mm-hmm. we we talked extensively about yeah. Gollum, but I think Saruman and uh, Sauron are both in- incredibly boring. They're kind of just yeah. they're out there to sort of destroy the world for their own gain and power, but. 
they have no they have no actual motivations. You don't exactly know why they want to do that. And maybe in the Silmarillion, maybe something's given to us. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But in the context of the Lord of the Rings itself, they have no motivation other than to basically wreak havoc and steal yeah. power. Yeah. <laughs> Their motivation is to be evil, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's the problem. Like, like uh, Tolkien has great antagonists. Like, everybody loves them. Like, Frodo and and Samwise and Aragorn and, you know, so many of the, so many characters in the cast, like Gandalf's fantastic. Like he's just, a you know, so like the, the, the antagonists are great, but the, sorry, the protagonists are great, but the antagonists, it's just like, okay. Like they're the, you know, symbol of pure evil, but, but you can, but you can really only do that for so long. And yeah, we've just, we've had decades of, of this good versus evil kind of going on. But what do you, what do you think about the ring as an antagonist? I think the ring's kind of interesting in itself and like maybe mixed with Sauron. Yeah. I mean, I think the ring is evil because I think in a lot of ways it, it does come back to kind of like the Christian um, mindset where the ring is sort of like the symbol of like temptation that Sauron presents mm-hmm. to the, you know, the, the mortals of middle earth. Um, he's basically saying that, yes, you can have this like really powerful ring, but there's a lot of caveats and a lot of bad things are probably going to happen, but then they do it anyway because they're tempted by the power. So I, I do think it, it, it largely represents kind of like the Christian ideal of temptation. And that is, and that does have like a certain amount of complexity that is not in the many fantasy books. Like you don't have something that deep, you know, that's connected to like such, you know, long traditions in Western, um, you know, history. So, I mean, I do think that, that that's like a really, really interesting inclusion, the ring. But um, I don't know. I just generally speaking, it's not it's not the black and or sorry, it's not the gray of um, Martin in any way. No, certainly not. And I mean, I thought it seems like Sauron probably has some really interesting backstory. Yeah, to potentially. <laughs> that might be in the Silmarillion. See, I mean, like that's like how we're, where we're at right now. Like, like we're more interested in like the motivations of these bad characters. Like, like what what happened to Sauron? Like, why is he so upset? <laughs> like, like who? Like, so he obviously something bad happened to him, or you know, he, he the the structure of the of the world wasn't in his favor, or something, or. Someone slighted him. Well, I guess it's <laughs> it's interesting you say that because I guess maybe once upon a time people just thought things like the blackness and the evil. They were just evil and they accepted it. They're like, oh yeah, that guy's bad. Let's just see him fall down. And when the bad guy falls, they go, yay, the bad guy yeah. loses, good guys win. But it's totally not synonymous with modern audiences. And I think that I think we're just so exposed to humanity now and so many different cultures mm-hmm. and so much history. And we have so much information that we're just like, okay, nothing really happens without a reason. Yeah. So if this person did this, you know, very few people, you know, I don't think many people would really care about what you tried to say about Hitler becoming evil, but there are certainly reasons why he did. I mean, I'm not defending him. He's absolutely one of the worst people in history, mm-hmm. but there's got to be motivations for why he became evil. And I think people are really interested in these things now, like you said, modern audiences want to know what makes this guy tick. You know, this guy must have been good at one point. There must have been one point where this character had goodness in them. Mm-hmm. You know, like six-year-old Hitler might have had something good in him, or maybe like um, I probably don't want to use that too much as an example. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, little Ramsey Bolton, maybe little Ramsey Bolton. You know, maybe yeah. he had a little bit of sunshine in his heart when he was a child. You know, people people want to know what turned it so black. You know? Yeah, exactly. And and there's so many layers to why people become evil. 
um, that you can easily have many, many different kinds of narratives about that sort of thing. And it's been done, you know, in so many ways and, and it's continuously, you know, fascinating. Like, like, um, I don't know, like, like PTSD is a really big thing. Being abused by another person is a really big thing. You know, having, um, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, genetic problem, like, like, you know, there's, like people um, imagine that Hitler had like all these different like diseases and there's like some evidence kind of like supporting that, you know, like uh, there's the, or like, you know, like an enlarged like pituitary gland or I don't know, like some crazy stuff that goes on that kind of causes people to have these like yeah. really bizarre behaviors. Um, and like, I mean, it's probably pretty important to study that stuff, yeah. but it, it's probably pretty hard to tell a hundred years after the fact too. Yeah. It's gotta be tough. And, it, and it's not like it's an apology for the evil because we can all recognize evil behavior. Like, like it's, it's still bad and we need to avoid the bad things, but it just, it becomes more interesting when you can kind of understand why they're doing that. And, and Martin's like, when Martin's at his high, high point, you, you can really see that you know, very clearly. Like, I think a really great character in um, Game of Thrones that shows this in so many different ways is, like, Cersei. Um, you know, like, Cersei's definitely a character I think that many people have a very hard time relating to because she is so... She has so done so many despicable things. But, like, she does a lot of things, you know, because of her children and because of her family and because of her, you know, those motivations. And... Just the state of being a female. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Or whatever, but like, well, she there's a line. I mean, one of the funniest lines, you know, like Cersei, you know, her her ultimate goal is to have power, right? Mm -hmm. She wants power. She wants to be the queen, but she recognizes that females can't have queen, and she has this really great line with Tyrion. I think maybe it's in book two, or she's like, she's like, you know, men are so easy to manipulate. You just all you do is need to think about that worm you have between your legs, and you can do well. You'll do whatever you you'll do whatever we want. Something like that, Uh you know, like men are so simple. Something to that extent, and I just love how like how. Martin's just willing to like. He, there's nothing off. Not, nothing is withheld with him, and he likes to just see how far stuff will bend. And mm. you know, I think it's true though. Like men, like if you're a female in this world, one of the easiest ways to get power is to manipulate men. Like Daenerys kind of does it in her own way. Cersei does it, yeah. and yeah. And I think another thing is like in Tolkien's books, like his, the heroes don't go unscathed. You know, a few characters die. Most of them come close to death, but ultimately they don't come out with like kind of the PTSD that the Game of Thrones characters have. They go back and, you know, they sort of live normal lives. I think Frodo might be the only exception because he has that like injury in his right shoulder mm-hmm. and he kind of does have some PTSD going on, but largely his characters just sort of scrape death and scrape against evil, but they come out still pretty much good. And if, they usually come out better than they did before. It makes them stronger and better. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's something that Tokyo might believe is, you know, these hardships and all the horrible things you'll face. If you can just survive them, you'll be a better person. Yeah. Whereas George R. R. Martin might be not, he's, he might not be so sure about that. He says, you know, if you scrape against too many evil things and, you know, it's kind of like Nietzsche, <laughs> if you stare into the abyss long enough, it's going to stare back at you. And where is the bending point? You know, when, when does a character become bad? You know, or when, when's the point where they completely lose it? Yeah. You know? How do you get a Joffrey Baratheon versus a Jamie Lannister? What causes Jamie to somehow kind of spin back and Joffrey to be unrecoverable? Yeah. Or seriously to be unrecoverable? Yeah. I mean, okay, well, that's like a whole other character uh, that you brought up, uh, Jamie Lannister. Like, honestly, like, it's kind of funny because I think, um, so, okay, so Jamie Lannister was just pure evil in the first, like, season or two. Like, like, especially the first season when he had that duel with, uh, with Ned and you just, he just like, he's so wicked and like, like he pushes, um, 
brand br- out, brand the out the window. Yeah, he pushed he pushed his brand out the, the things you do for love. <laughs> <laughs> like he's just so evil. And then he gets his hand cut off. And somehow that changes his whole worldview. And, and and then he's interacting with Brienne and, you know, it kind of yeah. brings a whole new layer to his character. And honestly, like, for at, le- for at least me personally, I still thought of him as a very, like, shitty, evil character just because I really didn't like him. For, like, at least, like, a season after, like, longer than, like, I think most people did. Because most people kind of, uh, like, came to, to him being, like, relatively good, like, pretty quickly after after that. Um, but I just still saw him as, like, pretty pretty bad well i mean i think the reasons why he's kind of bad are interesting you know there's three children that the lannisters have cersei Tyrion, and jamie and all three are drastically different and jamie is sort of the golden child you know he's the one that tywin respects he's he's the son he's going to be he's going to become like the heir to the lannister fortune he's the golden boy he's the good fighter he's the warrior he's the handsome one he has everything he's supposed to have in spades and it goes to his head you know he's got unlimited money he's like the captain i think he's like the captain of the knights or something he has some kind of high post yeah well, Kingsguard, I think when you go in the Kingsguard, if I remember right, you can no longer get married. So Tywin actually doesn't approve of that decision. He gets kind of angry when Jamie does it because he's basically saying, like, I'm never going to get married. And the reason Jamie wants to do it is because he wants to end up with Cersei, I think, at that <laughs> point. But the reason for Jamie's kind of badness in the beginning is sort of like the same as like uh, Joffrey's. He's a spoiled brat, basically. <laughs> he just gets everything yeah. he wants. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, you're the best. You're the best. You're so handsome. You know, you're such a great warrior. And it takes him sort of seeing all these atrocities around him, having his hand chopped off and realizing that he's not the biggest hotshot in Westeros. It takes him kind of the realization of losing everything that was given to him, becoming a prisoner, being around Brienne, who's actually a very honorable knight. I think he just has to see how ridiculous his own world was before he can actually change. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, Yeah, I mean, but look at this. We're spending like probably two-thirds of the of the time talking about game of thrones and a one-third of the time talking about you know lord of the rings and and lord of the rings is a classic and it's a fantastic book but i mean it's just like it doesn't have the, these characters this depth as as um you know game of thrones and and as as flawed as like game of thrones is like kind of like on a narrative level in some ways sorry no, um like like the, the later books like the pacing slows down and it just becomes less of an interesting story generally but the characters are always consistently awesome, and I think that's something. And you can just, like, spend forever talking about these characters. It's just, like, really cool. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, even if as much as I love Samwell from Lord of the Rings, I don't think I could talk about Samwell for 30 minutes, you know? It'd, no. be, it'd be tough. No, no, yeah. <laughs> He's a great... He's a great character. But, yeah, these characters in Lord of the Rings, just because they experience so much and you you take the journey with them. And I wonder, I mean, do you think that's partially through the writing, though? I mean, like, I guess people watch the show and have the same reaction. But the way Martin writes the books is you're you're seeing every chapter from a character's perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, I think seeing the characters from their own perspective and how they think about the world and seeing so many different characters so close, mm-hmm. it just makes it makes them so much more interesting. Whereas, you know, you're seeing Lord of the Rings more from a bird's eye like view. third party. And actually, basically... Yeah, basically through the writing of Bilbo and Frodo, actually, you're kind of getting a postscript of the adventures mm-hmm. of the ring or whatever you want to call it, Lord of the Rings, I guess. So it's just a sort of different way that the books are structured. And do you think that show people get the same satisfaction? I mean, I think personally, I've read the books and I've seen the show for Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't think I would talk about it as much had I not read the books. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. 
Um, I especially Lord of the Rings. I think because I think the um, the movies in particular take this very like Hollywood approach to the books, and I think a lot of the the ideas about what fantasy is that aren't necessarily completely captured by Lord of the Rings, like for example, it being completely just black, like good versus evil kind of thing, like. Like that's sort of like I I think a lot stronger in the, um in the the movies than it is in the books, and I think I I do think the books are are a little more nuanced and more complicated than a lot of people think, like like honestly like like you mentioned like um, like kind of like the the wounds that um that Frodo endured in the books, and it's such a it's such a um you know a long standing like burden that he has like it's like something he has to deal with like almost like the like the entire series like he has this like wound or whatever or like and like like he 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 doesn't have like this like Mary Sue status and like you know like he has his own burdens and she's struggling and but like that just comes across a lot less i think in the in the movies like it's more it's more interesting to me yeah, I mean, he's sort of a tragic hero, actually, when it comes down to it. Yeah, and you know, yeah. I think if you read the books, it's pretty easy to if it's pretty easy to look at the second half of Lord of the Rings and be like, Frodo's not the main character. Samwell's the main character. Samwell basically assumes the role of the hero. Frodo, for the endur- the entirety of uh, Return of the King, is like this kind of lagging sop of like kind of misery and no hope. Yeah, so yeah. Like, I got no hope. Yeah. It's all your hope, Sam. It's all gone. And he, every foot's dragging and he barely talks and he's sort of just taking one step at a time. Yeah. And if not for Samwell, the whole, the whole mission would be doomed. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that when you read the books, there's definitely um, a difference than watching the movies, but I don't really remember the movies all that well, to be honest with you. What I do remember is at that time, and I think this might speak volumes to what the difference is, is everyone who watched the movies raved about the CGI and the visuals Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of what kind of Lord of the Rings looked like. And I think that probably Peter Jackson was trying to find a way to capture that just utterly gorgeous prose that Tolkien uses in his books to describe every single element of his world, but there's just no way to really truly transfer that to cinema. And I think CGI is kind of what they decided to try, but unfortunately the prose and the sort of beauty in the book and the kind of some of the, um, I don't want to call it controversy, but some of the um, food for thought in the books is just not there in the movies. Like the CGI doesn't replace the prose, you know, for chapters that are completely cut out, especially like the, um, the ending chapter with sort of, the hobbits returning to um, the Shire, that's completely left out of the movies. Mm-hmm. I feel like the movies just miss so much of the subtext that you find in the book. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I know that actually the, the latter half, or not the latter half, but the latter, I don't know, 10, 10 or 15% of the Lord of the Rings is like a very interesting thing. And it's not at all captured in the movies. <laughs> like, I think for a lot of people, it's pretty surprising that they actually come back to the Shire and there's like, I think a hundred pages of what is of what happened, like while they're in, while, like at, you know, like while everybody was away, and then also when they returned, and it's like it's a story that I think a lot of people aren't even aware of. Yeah, actually, I mean, like I think I have the book right here. There's like a thousand thirty-one pages in the book, and Sauron, you know, the ring is kind of cast into Mount Doom. I think around page like nine hundred and forty. So in my version, there's about eighty or ninety okay. pages of post-Sauron stuff happening. Now it might depend what version of the book you have. Mm-hmm. You know, mine's huge, mm-hmm. so the pages are really big. So maybe you had a smaller one with 
smaller pages mm-hmm. and less print on them. But yeah, it is. There's this really interesting post story that's actually very vital to the story. And if you just skip that, like the movie kind of did, you actually miss out on some really interesting stuff and some more controversy, you know? Like there's some hobbits that kind of turn bad. Not really bad, but they sort of turn to Saruman and the human side who are kind of like ravaging their village. And you get more of that sort of like nature being destroyed for sort of human gain, greed, greed and gain. Like there's some really cool stuff there. Yeah. yeah, And, and it's just, yeah, I was, I was always really surprised when I read that. Um, Cause I think when I read it, I started reading a, like just a little bit before the, um, the first movie came out. And then I think I've actually read finished um, return of the King kind of, I think after the movie came out, if I'm not mistaken, but yeah, like, it's just like, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, it ends on a bit of a bittersweet kind of gloomy note. You know, Peregrine and Mary go off dancing, but Samuel basically loses his best friend unexpectedly. Frodo hops on this ship with Bilbo and uh, Gandalf and Galadriel and <laughs> elf guy. What's his name? Uh, like Elrond? Really strong Elrond. elf. Yeah, Elrond. They they all hop on this ship and they leave Middle Earth. And I don't even remember why. I, I even reading it today, I'm not exactly sure why they left. Yeah, it seems like they have like this one final journey to take. You know, Gandalf's like, "I'm leaving." Bilbo's like, "I'm leaving." Peace out. Frodo's like, "Yeah, I'm leaving too." Yeah. It seems like you know, there's just there's this change of the guard and sort of this change of the world. And I think that Tolkien's very aware that certain generations can't control things forever, and mm-hmm. that change is inevitable. And even like the the best, wisest, and strongest people of this current generation eventually have to pass the torch. And there's something very scary about that. Yeah. Like, no one well, knows what's going to happen. Yeah, but. and I mean, and I mean that that this is sort of like the aspect of the Lord of the Rings that I think um, is not. It doesn't really fit into the good always defeats evil world world worldview mindset that a lot of high fantasy you know encapsulates. Like, like ultimately, like uh, Tolkien's worldview, and we, I think we talked about this. Yeah, we did talk about this in the Fellowship of the Ring. But ultimately, his worldview is kind of dark, because, like, if you read the whole Lord of the Rings, like, you you really kind of like accept that his his mindset going into it is that kind of like the world is always getting worse. The world is never getting better. Um, nature's being destroyed, and it's just like this slope. And it's not getting, it's not going up, it's going down. And and that's kind of... But do you think he 100% abides by that? Because, I mean, it seems like he has this kind of optimism in his characters surviving their struggles. And at the end, the Shire is flourishing. Uh, Samwell puts those seeds in that Galadriel gave him, and now they have the most beautiful trees in the land. And Aragorn's going to rule justly and fix all the roads. And it seems like there's a hope there. Like, it's just like an uncertainty. Like, you don't exactly know what's going to yeah. happen. And, like, there's a real danger in what could happen in the future. And things could definitely get worse, as we saw in the Third Age in Lord of the Rings. But you don't really know that i feel like token token leaves it a little bit and like um unknown whether or not he thinks that the world's gonna get worse or better i'm not sure i always think i'm not sure he always thinks the world be a worse place yeah i'm not i just think he thinks that there's a real possibility that that could happen yeah you might be right that he's he's somewhat um i don't know trepidatious about committing but i think the fact that everybody leaves like the elves are leaving like frodo leaves bobo leaves like many of the main characters leave yeah. the fact that everyone's just kind of like on this exodus out. And um, even after they, they win this ultimate victory, like, I don't know. I think there's, there's, there's a lot in there that also says that, you know, the world is on a, on a downward spiral and 
you just got to enjoy enjoy it for what it is. And I mean, within that downward spiral, like there is good, um, like you know, there is there is some hope, but it's like he he he's he's kind of like um fighting this. I don't know, like like kind of two sides of his brain. I think, like they're like. Yeah, it almost seems like you know, like his what he's witnessing in the world around him is clashing with his clashing. Sorry, his classic Christian ideals. They're sort of fighting in his brain. You know, part of him wants to be like, yeah, the world's getting a lot worse. Nature's getting destroyed. There's war everywhere. It's ugly. Species are dying. But also, part of him is like, well, you know, good has to endure in the end, right? The Bible says good endures, Mm -hmm. and you know, we can make the, we can make the world a better place. It doesn't have to be a worse place. Like it looks like it's getting worse right now, but eventually we're going to, we're going to make a decision to let someone else control what's happening right now instead of the current politicians or current warmongers or whoever was controlling in his time. And eventually maybe they have a chance to make things better or return Mm -hmm. things to a previous state. But I think there was something like, maybe he says like things can never quite be returned to the beauties of a previous stage. Like, you know, all the things that you kind of long for from previous generations or your childhood or whatever, those can never quite be retained. And I think there's always a sense of loss in Tolkien's work. Mm -hmm. Like no matter like how much you come out on top, like you've lost something for what you've gained. Yeah. And you can never return to a previous age. Yeah, like change in your life or a different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think like change, like change is inevitable. Um, there's a very good chance that things will be worse than than they are now. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's it's a little bit hard to tell what he really thinks is going to happen in the future based on Lord of the Rings because uh-huh. it, it sort of goes up and up and down, you know. Uh huh. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely interesting. Um, I just think that that this this is something that's not typically captured by, I think the the notion that most people have of Tolkien as being very high fantasy, good versus evil sort of thing. Like this is a very this is much more deeper. This is much deeper than that. And and Martin himself even has come out. And if you listen to his interviews, like he basically suggests that, um, you know, that Tolkien has this this level to him, and he really respects Tolkien. Actually, he doesn't he doesn't say that he's very black and white. He he, he actually says he, he goes out of his way to say the opposite. And it's really just kind of like the subsequent writers, um, high fantasy writers that really, really made people believe that high fantasy was just about good versus evil, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Tolkien's sort of a writer that he's not for the simple, simple minded people that just want character controversy, you know, and I'm not saying Game of Thrones is just character controversy. It's also not a simple story if you read the books, but Game of Thrones is a thinking man's fantasy book. Mm -hmm. You know, it's got a lot of, you know, layers to it. Like we talked about in the fellowship episode, and there's just so much going around that I don't think that Tolkien ever meant to have so much focus on his characters. I don't think he ever really cared about their moral, moral compass. He cared more about the world he's creating and how they fit into his story and what his views of the world and language. And I think, his characters are just sort of there to fill the holes. Like he cares about them and they fill like specific roles. But like, I think ultimately he's telling that he's telling the story of a world and its languages and sort of giving, and there's a lot of philosophical kind of tidbits in there about nature and about kind of how time works and the passing of generations and um, good versus evil in its own way. You know, I think he, there's so much going on in Lord of the Rings. I don't, I don't want to say that like Game of Thrones is just a more complex series because it is and it isn't, right? They just do they just do different things right and wrong. Not even right and wrong. They just do different things well. Yeah. But I think one thing we have to talk about this. We have to talk about this a little bit because we have been dancing around it a little bit and I think we need to talk about females oh, in okay. the there context of these there books. You go. Now I know 
I know it's a really popular topic when it talks, comes to these, but I think like, you know, I think we both come from interesting backgrounds ourselves. You know, we both have a lot of female friends and we both lived in Asia and the West and we've seen very different um, situations where females live. You know, like I think for us, we think of these Asian countries as being relatively oppressive towards mm-hmm. women. I know a lot of females that come here sort of feel like females are oppressed and a lot of Westerners are sort of, a lot of Western females are sort of attacked. Um, Now I'm not into every aspect of feminism, but I generally support them having equal rights in every way. And I think that like books and culture and media has can definitely play a part in sort of the social struggles that we have, especially with feminism. And let's just start with Lord of the Rings real quick. I mean, Lord of the Rings has some very interesting female characters, now, there's not many, but there are they, are. they do have interesting roles in the book, though. And I guess we can start with Galadriel. What, what did you think, Galadriel? What did you think about her character, and what what is her significance? Yeah, to sort of the role of a female. Yeah, I mean, Galadriel is a very interesting character for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. I she she is a character actually that I think embodies uh, certain aspects of um, kind of like the elves being a little bit more on the like, like they have this ability to kind of like appear like they're a little bit evil, which is really weird. Cause it's one of the few female characters, but like, I don't know if you remember, but like, like the, when they first encounter Gladriel, um, Gimli is with them. And there's this whole scene about how they have to blindfold Gimli because, um, yeah. because the, like this particular group of um, elves is very, very, very like against kind of like, interacting with the dwarves because in their like kind of religion basically um the dwarves are kind of like like a little bit they're they're a little bit below um you know elves and humans they're they're kind of like they're not quite orcs or whatever but they're a little bit they're a little bit lower than than humans (laughs) and like and so they have to like blindfold Gimli and like they can't he can't know the location of their of their uh their base or whatever their their settlement and and I don't know there's just moments where Galadriel seems a little bit more on like the evil side I have no idea if that has anything to do with her gender or whatever but I I I don't (laughs) know if that's Galadriel though that's kind of that scene that you're referring to is kind of before they meet Galadriel. It's sort of like the male elves who are like the guardians of the forest that are going to bring them to Lothlorien. Yeah, yeah. And that's when they, they, they see Galadriel in there. And I think, if I remember right, Galadriel actually like apologizes to Gimli mm-hmm. and sends him like these really nice blessings. But I, I'm not <laughs> sure if you're honest. I don't know. But either. I mean, I don't know. It's just there's there's kind of like a funny – like it's not funny. It's not funny at all. But there's like a very uh, – a little bit – I would say obnoxious uh, Christian trope about how like kind of like women are more, I don't know, like easily tempted or something, which is, I don't know. I think, I think that's really silly, but. Well, do you think that applies to Eowyn too then? A- I, I don't a- know how you a- say her name. Eowyn. 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 Eowyn is, because Eowyn's definitely tempted to just sort of be everything she's not supposed to be. I mean, like, her family and stuff endows her with the ability to be a warrior, but she would rather just die recklessly in a war rather than just sit behind and wait for her chance before she recovers her injury. And you think that Tolkien is sort of making a sweeping statement that females are a little bit more prone to, like, quick decisions? <laughs> I mean, that? maybe. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I mean, this book was written in the what, like the 40s or something or 50s, 50s, in the 50s? 50s. Yeah. So I wouldn't expect Tolkien to have the absolute most progressive views 
ever. Although, I mean, it is great that he's including like female characters as leaders and warriors. And that's, that's progressive. It's just like, there might be some subtleties in the way he treats like their actions and behavior that kind of hints at a little bit of kind of like an, like an older, older mindset when it comes to women. Whereas I think Martin is very, very, very much so like in the, in the kind of like progressive mindset of women and mm-hmm. and he he definitely like not only do his characters have like roles of of power but the, like like they they have all of the complexities and and temptations and everything on the, on the same level as men like there's no like clear like 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 difference like it's it just seems like they're very similar in a way like he doesn't really separate it in a way where you're like that's that's how a woman is that's how a man is like i don't know yeah, I mean, I would, I want to defend Tolkien a little bit here with Aowen. I think Aowen's actually a pretty interesting character. I mean, she's someone who definitely is more nuanced. You know, she could, she's supposed to sit back and watch her family go to war and take care of the people, and she instead just like cloaks herself up and follows them into battle. And you know, I don't know. She ends up killing a Nazgul, I think, uh-huh. too, which is kind of cool. And I think that, um, I don't know. I think her character defies that a little bit. And I, that's like, I don't want us to seem like we're attacking um, Tolkien for being like an anti-feminist because I don't <laughs> think that's her goal. And I think Aowen's actually a really great character. But with that said, I mean, there aren't many female characters in this story. It is a very male-dominated story. But I mean, they are there to some extent, which I think for that time period, like you said, is definitely. Yeah, progressive for the 1950s for that time. Yeah, that, I, yeah. Now, yeah. George R. R. Martin, George R. R. Martin is way more progressive. I mean, he he's progressive enough to the point where he's. I mean, he's playing with a time period where women were basically nothing, like you know, in the Middle Ages. You know, mm-hmm. he's using that as his like his reference point for females, and they need to sort of thrive in that. But it, even within that world, there's different cultures, right? Like the Starks are not a family that have weak women. They're women have power they can they become fighters you know they train Arya with the bow Catelyn Stark is by no mean weak whatsoever she's about as strong as they come for females and she can kind of hold their own and I then you have characters like the Lannisters like the Cersei who's basically she's an amalgamation of everything that like woman can't be she wants the power she wants the throne she wants the respect that her brother Jamie gets she wants to like to be you know treated like treated like one of the family she wants the male heir and instead Tywin's just like get married get married get married give us an heir and she just does not want to fit into that role whatsoever mm-hmm. so i like that martin's toying with that he's he's also you know he's using the modern struggle that women have in an older context, but it seems very relatable because it's the same thing now, you know, no woman wants to be told, go to the kitchen, go get married, give us a son, you know, like that's just not, not something that modern women are going to appreciate at all. Mm -hmm. And like, I think in that way, Cersei has some admirable qualities. Now she doesn't, She's not a good character. She doesn't make good decisions that, you know, other female characters in the show do make, like someone like Sansa Stark. But um, I do think that it's interesting that Martin basically takes a very, very modern social issue and puts it into a a middle-aged scenario, and not much changes with it. It's sort of just, what are the stakes? The only stakes is who becomes king or queen versus, you know, would you have a job or something in the modern context? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think Martin is the the social values and just the the, the views uh, in in Game of Thrones are very very modern. I think, um, yeah, people don't really tend to. I think when when you read books that are of your era's um, kind of moral, I guess zeitgeist, like like a lot of people tend to not like have that something in their minds. Like they're not really thinking about it. But if if you compare it to like something written like 
you know, 200 years ago, it's extremely, yeah, it's extremely progressive. Um, and, and yeah, like Lord of the Rings. Okay. So like, like as far as, I mean, I do think it was progressive for its time, but you can even see like, like, I think there's very clear like gender roles in that. And, um, yeah, like, like there's no, there's no female among the, you know, the main, you know, party members, you know, just like stuff like that. Like, like I think I, you know, the Hobbit. Yeah. The Hobbit has zero female characters. <laughs> really? Like even among like just like random. I mean, I have to think about. There that. might be like, there might be like a village maiden that sends a message to someone in the city. But, like, <laughs> there's no, there's no, there's no named female characters in the yeah. Hobbit. Yeah, and and to me, I mean, it, it, uh, sadly, that speaks volumes. Like like the fact that there's no there's no strong females. Like, come on, that's weird, but. Um, but I mean, it, it was a book of the, of its era and, and for its time period, it was very, very progressive. So it's definitely something to keep in mind. Yeah. And I don't think it's anti-female. It's not like really, it's not trying to do anything against it. I think, I think it's just, yeah, like you said, it's soundly fitting in with the morals that people just had at that time and the sentiments they had. And it's hard to fault a book from a hundred years ago for doing that, you know? Yeah, exactly. Most people aren't going to buck the... buck the trends and predict what's going to happen in a hundred years or 20 years. Um, but yeah, I think like game of Thrones is just a, you, you have characters. I think what's so amazing about it is there's so many female characters. I mean, it's safe to say about half the cast of characters in game of Thrones are female mm. and Martin's writing chapters from the perspective of most of these characters. They're extremely nuanced. They don't feel any cheaper than any of the male characters. They don't seem any lesser. Um, every one of them is just completely different, has their own personality. You know, no one's going to mistake Sansa Stark for Arya Stark. You know, they're completely different characters. And, you know, like in this world, it's just interesting to see how his characters, grapple with their own gender issues i think you know like sansa is like sansa and aria you have like two sisters there they couldn't be more different you know one's an absolute tomboy who wants to be a warrior and sansa is basically like she wants to marry the prince and become the princess and it just like her character completely changes over the course of the book and she realizes just how flawed and how kind of like fairy tale her old ideas were about marrying a prince mm-hmm. and i don't know there's just so many interesting female characters like we could spend we could probably spend five podcast episodes talking about just the female oh yeah no totally and and to me for me personally i actually um I, I much more actually prefer the female characters in game of thrones like i'm just not a Jon snow kind of guy you know <laughs> i mean so he's he's grown on me a lot i, I kind of like john now he's he's grown john on snow me, knows yeah. nothing <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not gonna say my favorite. I I have favorites among both the male and the female characters, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I mean, that that is. I mean, that's kind of what the beauty of it is, though, right? Like, so many people love Game of Thrones partially because there is so much representation of different, you know, different females, males, you know, people from different kind of species. There's brown people. There's white people. There's all these different kinds of peoples. You know, everyone in Lord of the Rings feels very kind of white. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, there's different races. Everyone feels very white and yeah. male. It feels like there's one demographic. Yeah. But in Lord of the Rings, you, know, you have like the Dothraki who are these kind of like, and you know, they're not like dull. You know, he's not being racist or being, he's not treating them like they're any worse. They're just different kind of cultures. And it seems like Martin has a very big interest in sort of like how different cultures exist, how they worship, how they kind of like fight in warfare, how they have like, how, what, how they do treat women versus men. And he, he's just really interested in that on like a small scale with every single one of his kind of peoples and where they're from. Even families treat like females and different peoples individually different. You know, think about the Mormons, you know, you're always talking about that little Mormon girl. You <laughs> Lyanna, like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> R- rip RIP. <laughs> so, 
Anyways. <laughs> yeah, it just seems like, it almost seems like the Lannisters are, like, living out, like, this old Victorian lifestyle. Like, you know, like, a girl can't be queen. Only the handsome, dashing knight can represent our family. We have the best brain in the land, but we're not going to do anything with him. Like, Tyrion's completely just ousted just because he's a dwarf. It seems like the Lannisters are, like, the epitome of, like, all the worst things about, like, Victorian culture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I think you're right. Um, and I think that's kind of, like, what Tolkien – or not, what Martin is going for. And and I think um, – I've always thought that Game of Thrones was kind of, like, a, like, kind of like a, a critique on the kind of, like, feudal Europe. Um, because like, like, I think, uh, one of the really like fundamental aspects of feudalism that's really, really detrimental for, for any society is just kind of like how unstable it is because you have like all these families that are essentially like interbreeding with each other. And it's like, it's, it's a very like human form of government. Like, like these relationships like got like determined so much and like whole kingdoms go to war because of these, you know, relationships and, it's just like unstable and, and not really sustainable in the long run. Like you need a more robust system that, that doesn't have to do with who's sleeping with who and like, like who's cousin to who. And, you know, it's just like, it's fundamentally not good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting that game of Thrones, most of the main characters in game of Thrones are from very rich, powerful families. They're absolutely like the people we would hate in modern society. They're like the politicians <laughs> and like the wealthy and like the people with unlimited power and resources. And, you know, you see Lord of the Rings, like there's so many peasants and people that are just sort of, and it's more in the books. You know, I think in the books he talks a lot about sort of the, um, the road to King's Landing and how dangerous mm-hmm. it is. Like no one's allowed to walk on the road and all the people are starving because no food's coming in. And I think that's another, yeah, you're absolutely right. Martin is definitely interested in like how a wealthy class can affect an entire city, an entire nation. And just how like a little power most people have like in this society. Like it's just ridiculous that like, you know, Jamie, I was say it's just ridiculous that like Jamie and Cersei as brother and sister having sex just has like so much consequence. Oh, exactly. Like it exactly. shouldn't, but it does. Exactly. Um, no. And like, like just, I think um, Martin is, is much better or no, I don't know better, but just like more, he, he conveys like the different differences that come about from like power dynamics in like a really interesting way, like 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 showing what it is like to have no power whatsoever and to just be subject to the whims of the world and like what's occurring around you and and versus like basically being like a king, and like he he can depict like that that power dynamic like so well and I think that's a re- another thing that's really interesting. Yeah, versus Tolkien, where Tolkien might you know it seems like Tolkien kind of roots for the little guys. Like as long as you have the right faith and you have like the right your head's in the right place, you can do whatever you want. You know, <laughs> even these little tiny hobbits, yeah, exactly, that have absolutely no recognition yeah. on a global scale can can find the utmost bravery yeah. and create and do like these really become absolute heroes in their land and basically accomplish anything. And so Martin definitely is more grounded in realism. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he's very much like, yeah, there's absolutely a wealthy class. There's absolutely people that have no control over anything. There's absolutely people that are going to control way too many people. There's people that are going to start wars. There's people that are going to lead rebellions. There's people that are going to use religion to manipulate the people. I mean, I think that Martin's definitely more interested in sort of the inequalities of society, mm-hmm. I guess, and sort of just how everything's sort of interplaying 
in very very unfair ways in yeah. a lot of cases. Yeah, like like by comparison, Tolkien's world world just seems so optimistic because like you could be a hobbit and you can change the course of the whole world. <laughs> just need to find a Gandalf. <laughs> to, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like like a Gandalf's just gonna show up and like everything's gonna be fine. And I mean, so like I think we're just coming to like yeah, we're coming to um both the game of thrones and lord of the rings are complicated and nuanced and interesting but game of thrones is just all of those things just in a much more overt direct way whereas i think you really have to like kind of look you have to read between the lines of lord of the rings to really see that that similar nuance and in game of thrones it's just like boom like right in front of your face you know yeah, but uh, to defend it, because I feel like you're kind of leaning towards the Game of Thrones side, to give Lord of the Rings a little bit more of an edge, I think that just what Tolkien is doing with language itself, the fact that he has languages you can learn, uh-huh, the fact uh-huh. that the world is just so beautifully crafted. I mean, he these are things that Martin has never done. Martin has never created a language. He's never created a world from the ground up. Even though Martin has a lot of mythology, it's a, it's a really amazing how much mythology actually exists in Lord of the, no, sorry, Game of Thrones. But I think that Tolkien edges him in, t- in terms of like world creation and language and just how detail oriented yeah. he is. Cause like Lord of the Rings, it's just crazy how much history there yeah. is and how many different, like, you know, lore, how much, how the lore is interplaying with yeah. it and all these like different ages and species. And like Tolkien's just made so much of what makes fantasy, including game of Thrones. So special. Yeah, today. no, it's absolutely, I true. think game of Thrones is just like, it's just the biggest fantasy series since Lord of the Rings and it makes some. It makes sense that something has to pick up that mantle, but I think this is where it's a little bit weird to compare them because, like, they're just fundamentally different stories, yeah. and they just do so many different things right. So it's kind of weird to be like, which one's better? <laughs> it's like, well, why does one have to be better than the other one? They both have like, you know, I think we just talked about for an hour, like both of them just do these different things yeah. well. And yeah. I mean, I don't, but one thing I want to talk about though, because I think it's really important to talk about this, is the writing itself. I mean, like, you have you read the um, Fire and Ice books? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read. Um, the I read uh, Game of Thrones, so I read the first one and ha- maybe half of the second one. <laughs> okay. All right. I've read, I guess, as of today, since I just finished Return of the King today, I've officially finished all of the available main text for these Okay, stories. that's cool. Now, I haven't read a lot of the side stuff. Like, I didn't read, like, The Silmarillion, or I haven't read, like, um, A Fire and Blood, the Targaryen story he just made. But I think, like, talk about these stories. In terms of the writing, like, which one, what do you think are the strengths of the writing in Lord of the Rings versus um, Game of Thrones or A Song of Fire. Yeah, so Lord of the Rings is definitely more like prose-centric. You know, you have like so many poems and music and songs and like really cool additions that just kind of make the the writing feel very like kind of fancy and fun and and just like kind of like a unique experience. You know, like obviously the the addition of those like, um, you know, made-up languages, you know, it's just like – it's unmatched, like his lo- the level of depth in- into the world building itself, and then obviously, to- or sorry, uh, Martin, like you're you, it's just like the characters, like we've already already said, and um, I think it's his writing is actually very very good, like his like I I would not say I mean, Martin has among the he has among the best prose of any modern uh, like fictional writer, like it's it's very 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 top notch. So, well, I think one thing that kind of falls hand in hand with the characters, though, is I think that 
uh, Martin's dialogue is much more interesting and rich than a lot of the Lord of the Rings dialogue. Now, that isn't complete. I don't 100% believe that because I think Lord of the Rings has some really cool dialogue. You know, the fact that he- Samwell talks so much more differently than some character like Gandalf. Mm-hmm. Like, I love whenever Samwell talks, I just smile. I'm like, yes, I love Samwell. <laughs> he's, 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 he's awesome. Your man. Like, gentle hearted. Yeah. yeah. But, like, you know, I think that it's just. It's just such a credit to Martin that he is able to incorporate so many characters who have so many different personalities and life experiences, and he can just write their dialogue just so much differently. Like, Daenerys does not talk like Tyrion. I mean, no one talks like Tyrion, but, like, <laughs> you know, Daenerys doesn't talk like Jon Snow or Eddard Stark or Jaime Lannister. And the fact that, like, Martin's dialogue is so compelling to me is just like a testament to how strong his characters are. You know, like whenever there is a, whenever there's a scene with Tywin, then when he walks in the room, I'm like, Oh yes, yes. What's Tywin <laughs> going to say? What's Tywin going to say to jo- say to Joffrey? This would be so great. And he's just so really good at getting into this character's head. And it, it translates to his writing into the dialogue. And that's why this show is so good. I mean, without the writing there, the show wouldn't be what it is. You know, all of Tyrion's clips would probably be a lot cheaper without the actual text to go off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think both authors excel exceedingly well at just prose and writing. Um, but I, I think kind of like they're different, like the differences really come through with kind of like their their central focus, where I do believe that Tolkien's central focus is really his languages and his world. And Martin, it's absolutely the drama in the characters that he's depicting and not as much the world. Um, I, so I do think that the world building in um, A Song of Fire and Ice, Game of Thrones, is just not as interesting to me. Although I actually think he does some pretty cool stuff um, with the anything north of the wall. Like, that's pretty cool. I think that's honestly pretty cool. And, and the war... Yeah. yeah, and like Bran's whole thing, like that's just really cool. Like actually, what he ends up doing. But... I don't know, man. There's a lot of really cool mythology in Game of Thrones. You know, the Targaryens having like dragon's blood and being kind of like incestuous, and like the first, like you know, the the sort of wargs and like how the like that who's the Ice King guy? What's that guy's uh, name? The Night yeah, King. Yeah, the, the Night King. How the Night King was like created by these like tree children to fight off like the first men. There's so much cool mythology and like the religion, how like kind of Raylor shows himself versus like the old gods. I don't know, man. I think there's a lot of really cool um, mythology in. Yeah. No, I I think you're right. I I just think. I think it parallels our world more. Like if you're not interested in religion, if religion's not something you want to read about. Then, like ironically enough, maybe maybe Lord of the Rings is better, (laughs) like because like. Like that, but I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't want to say that. I'm not even sure if I believe that either. I feel like it's hard for me to like make these grand statements about these books. Yeah. I just. I just can't. Like, there's so much nuance to them, yeah. and like I don't know. I just the both of them. I think both of them have amazing lore. But yeah, I think just the fact that Tolkien was an insane man and probably spent years <laughs> of his life inside his own yeah, head yeah. crafting this world. Like no one else just would put in that dedication. Mm-hmm. So I think world creating. I'd have to give mm-hmm. to him. Although Martin's books, by all means, have awesome world creation. I mean, it's just really cool how he mixes history with his own sort of fictional universe and kind of meshes the two together pretty seamlessly for the most part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for sure. I definitely agree. Like, they're just different authors, but I think both are really great. Um, I do think that, um, and I, I said it at the beginning and I'll say it again, but I think Martin wrote himself into a little bit of a, like a pickle. Like, like he, it's just like, like the, his writing style, man, like, God, it's just complicated, I think, for him to, to to grasp this thing that he's built. But yeah, 
it sounds like he might have like a vision of the end, but he doesn't exactly know how to get the parts to get to that <laughs> yeah, end. Like, like, <laughs> if I move this piece, oh crap! What happens to this other yeah, piece? Like, yeah, he's in know. he's in a bit of like a like a like a narrative struggle with what he's trying to do. Um, and but but I do feel like like that's not to me the plot is not what's most interesting. I guess that's the other thing that we could say is the plot of Lord of the Rings is more of like an interesting thing to me. I don't really care that much about the plot of Game of Thrones, but I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm not. You mean like the the whole plot? Because I feel like Lord of the Rings has like one really big like one directional plot. There's like some subplots happening, but Game of Thrones has so many subplots. Like the White Walkers, you could kind of argue that they're they're a completely different plot than kind of like the Lannisters and Starks or I don't know. Yeah. There's just so many plots in there. I think like Lord of the Ring, a game of, with Game of Thrones, you're gonna find some plots that interest you more than others. Like, you know, for one, like I'm not really interested in the Greyjoys all that much. Like I don't find their lore and everything all <laughs> that fascinating. But yeah. Like I don't hate them, like it's fine, but like I think that there's other parts of the plot that move me more. Like I really love the political moments with like Tyrion and Cersei when they're kind of jousting against each other in book two. Uh-huh. Well, a lot of people find that really boring. A lot of people find that one of the most boring parts of the whole series. But I just love the inter. I love the interactions and the tensity between a lot of the characters, such as Tyrion and Cersei, might be my favorite in the whole story. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think it just depends. Like in Game of Thrones, you just get attracted to certain characters and certain plots, and other ones sort of are less important to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess. Um, I guess that's what. Okay, so I think if you look at it from like a very high level point of view, like the the grand epic. The, tale of um game of thrones the iron throne. the iron throne. that's not what i'm really interested in that that's stories for that story for and the, but i'm i'm more interested in like you said like the the character interactions and the subtle jousting and kind of like the 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 battles of the individuals that are kind of like in this world that's more interesting to me whereas in lord of the rings i think the grand epic that he's trying to tell is actually really interesting um and I, I like I like it a lot. Like I, I like the scale. I like I like the story of Lord of the Rings from the scale that it's being told at. And I think that's really interesting and a huge part of the story. Whereas in Game of Thrones, I just like I'm like I don't. Okay, fine. Daenerys finally made it to Westeros. Woohoo! I don't know. Right. I mean, I think that's the thing. Is like with Lord of the Rings, you're never gonna forget about the ring. The ring is like omnipresent throughout the book. That's always the mission, even when it's like panning to other characters. But with Game of Thrones, there's points where you literally forget about some of the plots that yeah. are happening. You you return to a character and you're like, whoa, I, I, I forgot this was even happening. I forgot that, you know, like this character was here. Or this character was doing this. And I think that that's kind of like what Martin's going for. There's just so many different things happening, and somehow they all relate to each other. But sometimes plots just don't touch another plot and Martin's overall plot, I guess what you could summarize is the battle for Westeros and the Iron Throne. I guess that would be the general plot line. Yeah. You know, a lot of characters don't even care about that Iron Throne. Like the Starks don't want to be sitting on the Iron Throne, but they're still a massive part of the story. You know? Yeah. There's just so many different parts of the parts of the story. It's hard to it's hard to really like if you had to write a paragraph that summarized the entire A Song of Fire and Ice series, like that'd be really hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. I guess like something like because we're running out of time here a bit, but I think one thing that might actually be really important to touch upon that I didn't think of before is the the warfare in the books, because these are essentially both tales of sort of a war, and I guess the warfare is depicted 
in different ways. Like we talked about it in the very beginning of the episode with sort of a long night being compared to Helm's Deep. And I guess like which which kind of which one do you prefer warfare in? Do you prefer the battles in the Lord of the Rings or the battles in Game of Thrones? Yeah, see that's really interesting because I I, I don't know. I feel like um the a long night as it's depicted in the HBO production is not really reflective of I don't know, maybe like the way that um, some of the other battles are, are depicted in uh, in the series. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like like that – I, I kind of feel like the HPO thing kind of cheapened it a little bit, to be honest. Um, but I guess you could look at a different battle, something like maybe like the Battle of the Blackwater where uh, Stannis target – no, sorry, Stannis, Stannis Baratheon. Stannis Baratheon is trying to storm um, King's yeah. Landing and Tyrion has to go fight. Like that, that was a pretty Oh, yeah. Big see, okay, so see on, on like that, that scale – okay, so I, I much prefer that than like the Lord of the Rings equivalent probably. Um, although, I don't know, there are moments in Lord of the Rings that I really love, like this, this, the sieging of Minas Tirith or Helm's Deep or – you know, the the riders of Rohan killing some orcs. Like, those are all really, you know, just classic epic moments. But I, I, I do feel like something like, um, the you know, that siege of King's Landing, you know, it really depicts the scale of warfare in a way that you never really, like, truly see in um, Lord of the Rings. Like, I, I really like the inclusion of the, um, God, what is it? The, whatever that magical fire crap is called. <laughs> In the Lord no. of the Rings, you know, Raylor and Melisandre. Like, yeah, no, no. Oh, I know what you're talking about the stuff that's under King. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh it's man, like, what is that? I know like, exactly what you're talking about. It's like wildfire yeah, or something. Yeah, like that, that fire. Like that's that was really cool. And then it's like just like how many ships there were, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I don't know, I feel like in um in I don't know in uh, Game of Thrones, there's kind of like these gotcha moments in the battle where like or not gotcha but just like i don't know like some other army just shows up and it like it's over <laughs> blah, blah, blah. yeah but that's you know that's another case where it might just be the show like you're taking a, probably that battle like john snow and ramsey yeah battle of the bastards where he get john snow gets basically bailed out by the knights of the veil and i don't know if george r, r. martin's gonna do that in his book i don't know if he's gonna do the same thing i don't feel like he is yeah and that could be another that might that might be another instance of HBO um, chopping. Yeah, it, it might be chopping some of the context down and cheapening. Yeah, it, it might be. I I don't really I know. I really hope that that Martin just like just completely alters the last two seasons, or like the okay the last book or whatever. Um, is it one or two books left that he has to write? Two. There's six, which is called The Winds of Winter, and seven, which is Songs of yeah. Spring. I just hope he he really. I hope it's just a totally different thing from the the show. I really just. I just like. I don't know. HBO to me is just not as interesting as as the books. I definitely agree. I didn't like the last season as much. Although I am enjoying this season a little bit more. Although that big battle <laughs> has cool, had some really cool moments, but yeah, it just. I think warfare just gets boring when you watch it too much, especially like fantasy warfare, because it's not you, you don't really feel attached to a lot of it. Like when I see a dragon, like when I, how, how often can you show a dragon blowing away White Walkers? Like it loses its appeal after the first few times you see it. But I don't know. I felt like yeah, I, I'm gonna give it a tie, man. I'm gonna give it a tie. I, I really can't pick here because I think like this the siege of Minas Tirith is God, like so, so awesome. awesome. Like how there's just like seven it's layers. So awesome. There's seven yeah. layers of the yeah. city. 
And you literally, I mean, when I'm reading it, like, I knew they were going to win, but, like, I still felt like I had to, like, kind of, I was tense. I was like, man, they, like, broke through the first wall. These Nazgul are flying over them. Like, they have no men left to fight. And, like, Tolkien really made me feel like there's, like, this scarcity of men and just, like, there's this unlimited force of just orcs and Sauron soldiers. They're just going to keep pouring in and pouring in and pouring in. And any victory you get is basically just this, like, very very passing victory that will soon be just like destroyed by another wave of orcs and that was like kind of like harrowing when i read it and i feel like game of thrones yeah i feel like martin is more interested in like the specifics of battle like you know like where the soldiers are placed and sort of relating it to like real life battles Mm -hmm. and sort of history and like european warfare so they're both really good i don't know i i i have to call it a tie just i like yeah i i I don't know i guess i i think i'm i'm going with uh lord of the rings now just because just because of the epicness man like like i think um it it captures kind of like that medieval like kind of idea of just like valor and just like honor and i don't know i i really love that it's really really cool for for like a fight scene especially when you're up against like orcs and everything like that it's just like god damn yeah, for sure. And I think that like it's kind of cool that he, he all his characters do take scrapes in the battle. I guess where Game of Thrones might win out is you don't know the outcome as much and the, the personal characters might... Some of that character development might kind of persist through the battle, such as like Tyrion. I mean, the Battle of the Blackwater is so important for Tyrion's character development. He gets that scar and it turns a little bit darker and he's seen combat and it changes him. But um, I think we're running out of time yeah. here. So <laughs> is there anything you'd like to add? add for, to this conversation before we end it we talked about it a lot i feel like we repeated a lot oh, yeah. but i feel like there's no way to really talk about these series without kind of hitting back to certain points um okay so i think uh you know both of these uh series are considered classics um at this point especially lord of the rings and and lord of, anything i think that is compared to lord of the rings you know it's doing pretty pretty well in the in the world of uh literature so you know I think both of them are really amazing, although they're very, very amazing, I think, for different ways. And I think we kind of came to that, um, you know, multiple times. They, they both have different strengths and, you know, written by very different authors. So, I, you know, you can compare them, but ultimately they're kind of like very different in their own ways. So I don't know. It's definitely fun to do, but it's not it's not exactly appropriate in a lot of ways to compare them. But it's definitely really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think we compared them without kind of trying to say which one is ultimately better. That was never the question we were seeking. So I think it's kind of it's still okay to compare them as long as you do it in a unique way that sort of analyzes them rather than just diminishes them to one being better than mm-hmm. the other. Now you can have a preference; it's totally fine to have a preference. But um, yeah, I think so. I think we did a pretty good job. I guess my last question to you is: Do you think that in twenty, thirty, fifty, hundred years, do you think Game of Thrones will still be relevant? Um, yeah, I th- absolutely do. Um, I think. You know the the TV production has really pushed it over the top in a lot of ways, but I think especially when he, f- you know, hopefully he actually does finishes you know the last two books of the series, um, you know, people will come back to the books as being kind of like what really brought this series to its prominence, um, you know, and I I do honestly think this series will be will be remembered as one of the best ever. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Pixel Meditations. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. If so, please support us and help spread the word so we can reach new listeners. You can do this by simply subscribing to our podcast, leaving us ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast apps, and by sharing our content. Your feedback and ideas are very important to us, so please get in contact 
with any requests, comments, or suggestions. You can find us on Twitter at Pixel Meditation, Gmail at thepixelmeditations at gmail.com, and Facebook at the Pixel Meditations page. <laughs>